Welcome to the Addy Hour, where we talk brain science, mental health, faith, culture, and social justice. Having attended one of Dr. Addy's town halls, I can tell you that it's vital information for anyone living in America right now. It was the first time in a very, very long time where I felt like all of me could show up, each parts of my identity. I'm your host, Dr. Nee Addy. My friend, Dr. Nee Addy, is such a unique person who is both scientifically astute, understands the human soul and the mind. At the same time, he has compassion and empathy for the masses. He's been nothing but a blessing to my congregations and my friends. It was the first time I felt like it was safe to talk about issues that are usually not talked about, like mental health and faith and wrestling with your identity. By the end, I walked out feeling so much more validated and hopeful. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Addy Hour. It's always my joy and pleasure to host these important conversations. Hard to believe this is episode 39 already, so I definitely appreciate all the support that you all have given and just all the feedback from so many listeners. I was just mentioning offline with today's guest that I actually came back from a talk where some of the people that were participating in a research institute actually looked at one of our podcasts and had a small group discussion about it. So it's really encouraging to hear all the different ways that you all are really benefiting from this and helping using it to help you think about things in a different kind of way. So today I'm honored to be able to host a conversation about topics that are near and dear to this podcast. We're going to be talking about mental health and the church, tension or hope, or even tension and hope. And I'm honored to be able to welcome a wonderful guest to the podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Tama Bryant. So Dr. Bryant, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited and have been looking forward to the conversation. Wonderful. Well, I'm definitely excited as well. And this is something that I'm I'm really uh, curious to see where we go because there's so many different directions that we could take this conversation. So just to give you all as listeners a quick, in, uh, quick introduction to Dr. Tama, for those of you who might not be familiar with her, Dr. Tama is a tenured professor of psychology at Pepperdine University, where she also directs the Culture and Trauma Research Laboratory. She is someone who has clinical interest in interpersonal trauma, also on societal trauma and oppression. And she's been really instrumental in her career over the years, really raising public awareness regarding mental health by extending the reach of psychology beyond the academy and also beyond private therapy to really reach into communities through things like community programming, organizational consultation, popular books, and media engagement. She's also the current president of the American Psychological Association, also known as the APA, so a very influential organization in this country, which we'll hear more about as we jump into the conversation. She has numerous awards, too many to mention here, so I'm just going to leave it at that and say that she does have numerous awards, but I do want to mention a couple of the things that she's involved in. So in addition to being the APA president, she hosts a podcast called Homecoming, which is a mental health podcast. She's also the director of the mental health ministry at her church, the first AME church in South Los Angeles. And she's the author of several books and articles. One I wanted to mention is called Homecoming, Overcome Fear and Trauma to Reclaim Your Whole Authentic Self. So someone who has definitely been influential in society and in the field, and I'm just grateful and honored to be able to welcome her here again to the program uh, today. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And we're excited at the American Psychological Association to get ready to host you as one of our invited speakers at the August Annual Convention in Washington, D.C. So, so much gratitude for the work mm. that you do. I definitely appreciate that. I'm really looking forward to that, uh, just be able to, to be engaged um, with that group. Not to detract too much, but that's to take me back a little bit because as our listeners know, I'm a neuroscientist, but during my sabbatical a few years ago, I actually spent time with clinical psychology interns um, in the Bronx in New York at Montefiore wow. Hospital. And that really informed some of the work that we're doing on this podcast. So in a way, the APA invitation is full circle for me, and I'm really excited about it. Oh, wonderful. I love that. And the application and integration, because often we have these separate uh, profound conversations that are happening in our subfields and subdisciplines. Mm -hmm. And so when we can connect and really exchange across those different lines, it's really uh, phenomenal. Yeah, I definitely agree. Well, you're getting me primed and ready already. Okay, good. <laughs> Which is wonderful. So as my listeners also know, I always like to just check in with our guests to see where they are at in this point in time and how they're doing overall. I think it's very appropriate, but then also unfortunate that we have to acknowledge that even as we're recording, we're only a couple days past yet another school shooting, something that we've had to talk about too often on this podcast, just the frequency with which that's happening, and definitely want to take time to just commiserate and mourn and grieve with all those who are affected by that. But in that spirit, just wanted to see how you are doing at this point in time, just with everything that we continue to navigate as a society. Yes, so I am doing well, even as I think about all of the traumas that we uh, are exposed to in our individual lives and also as a collective. Uh, and I am able to do well, I think, by being mindful of the number of people who are working to make things better. Mm. And so that nourishes me so it doesn't feel like me against the world. Right? Mm -hmm. There are uh, many like-minded people who are in their own way or in their own discipline or in their own communities uh, working for the transformation. Mm -hmm. And so that nourishes me. And then on a personal note, um, I'm also a mom and mm. my daughter is a senior in high school. So mm. we are in that busy season of mm -hmm. college applications and prom and graduation. Uh, so that is really making me thoughtful about seizing the time and the mm. moment, you know, that she'll be going into another season. So for each of us to think about like the gift of now and mm. being present, you know, showing up for those that we love. And so that really means a lot to me. Mm. Well, I really appreciate that. And that just sounds like such a healthy perspective to be able to hold all those pieces together, um, especially knowing that there are challenges that people are going through. But then, as you mentioned, um, knowing that there are those who are about the work. And even as you were talking, as I was reflecting, also just thinking about someone like you and your role and your focus on some of the trauma-informed work, just wondering if you could even expand on how you continue to have that healthy balance so much so that the work itself or what you are helping people navigate through doesn't become overwhelming for you on a day-to-day -day basis. Yes. Oh, so thank you for that question. A lot of times when people hear that I'm, along with being an educator, I'm in practice and working primarily with trauma survivors. And so people will often say, oh, that must be depressing. Mm. But it actually is quite inspiring mm. because uh, survivors are incredible people. You know, they're uh, often we wear it well. Mm. And people, uh, if you just encounter someone 
on the bus or at work or in the supermarket, you know, you don't really know their story, but I get the opportunity to be able to bear witness and mm -hmm. to hear people's stories and you know, in that African American culture, we would say kind of anyhow, like what they mm -hmm. have done anyhow mm -hmm. is amazing. Not only, you know, think about maybe professionally, but personally, to still be a loving person, to be a kind person, to have grace um, is is remarkable, given what some people have survived. And so um, seeing people's courage and tenacity uh, to try to live well is remarkable. And then I also do work on the side of prevention. I think if you're only working in the aftermath, it can mm -hmm. feel like, you know, what's the point? There's always like gonna be another school shooting or mm -hmm. another sexual assault or another child who's been abused. But when you get to also work in helping stop the cycle, um, so not only do I work with uh, survivors, but I have also uh, worked with persons who have offended. Mm. And so knowing that it's a choice and that people can make another choice mm. um, really helps me to keep showing up. Mm. Wow. There's a lot there, I think, uh, on both sides, even aspects of grace and things I want to definitely yeah. come back to and kind of peel back the layers on. But before we get there, just also wondered if you'd give our listeners a little bit of a sense of how you got into this work in the first place and how you developed this passion for the work that you do. Yes, I love to share it. I uh, am actually a pastor's daughter. And so uh, the, 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 um, within the African-American community, a lot of times people feel more comfortable talking to their minister than a therapist or psychologist or social worker. And so growing up, I often saw people um, coming to meet really with both of my parents for what we would call pastoral care or pastoral counseling. Uh, in my book, Homecoming, I say my teen years were my first years working at a crisis hotline because people would just call, <laughs> call the house at all hours of night and day just with whatever they were holding. And so um, I learned very early I would be what people would describe as sensitive. And you can either think of like sensitive people as that's a problem or that's a resource or a strength that we feel things deeply and, you know, really empathize with others um, and have a love for, for listening and for being of service. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I was, I was exposed to pastoral counseling and then I discovered like that it's a field in and of itself. Mm -hmm. This is like something where people, you know, focus their life's work and on human behavior and human interaction and uh, kind of working to the service to, to betterment, uh, to better uh, society and humanity. Uh, and so initially I thought I wanted uh, to practice full time. And then when I applied to Duke University, where we both attended, yep. uh, they really have a, a focus on those who want to do research. Mm. And at first it wasn't a passion of mine, but it's all about getting the right exposure. And I ended up working uh, with a faculty member, uh, Susan Roth, who works from the perspective of feminist psychology, mm. which means not just looking at the individual, but paying attention to the systems in which people live mm -hmm. and how to transform those as well as individuals. And so that really got me excited. And also she does qualitative research, which is uh, documenting people's stories. Mm -hmm. And um, um, I love stories. 
and I love storytelling. And so that got me interested in research and teaching as well. Mm. Wow, that's wonderful to hear about a journey and so many different pieces. And again, and one of the themes I keep hearing as you're talking about just how you're doing day to day when you're talking about your passion, your educational experience, is also just your ability to kind of hold different pieces together, even as you were talking about thinking about the individual, also thinking about the systems, as you were talking about the work that you've done with those who are survivors, but then also working with offenders. And so I think there's a lot of, of strength that likely comes from that as well. Um, and then even as you talked about being empathetic and seeing that as a, as a strength and a way to kind of navigate and help people through, because I think in so many instances, people do see that, but they also see or feel the burden because maybe things aren't, and there's never any sense of true balance, but things mm -hmm. are too skewed on one side or the other. So I'm just curious as I'm kind of reflecting on what you're right. saying, if that's something that you've actively thought about, or if it's just something that has kind of come naturally to you in terms yeah. of holding multiple perspectives together at once. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I think it does capture it that, you know, the way I've thought about it is being holistic, mm, you mm. know, so mind, body, heart, spirit, mm -hmm. and also like um, perspective taking, right? To, you know, when clients come in and tell their story, or even sometimes I'm not only working with individuals, but I work with couples and families. Mm, mm -hmm. And so it's important to be able to see the circumstance from different angles, mm -hmm. um, because two people, as we know, can have the quote unquote same experience and mm. see it totally differently. Mm -hmm. So it helps to be able to kind of step outside of yourself and um, to be more whole, right? To uh, be grounded in the fact that we're, we're complicated. People mm -hmm. are complicated, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so when we try to simplify it or only see people as one thing mm. or based on one moment in their life, uh, we're missing the full story. Mm. So I do uh, aim to be holistic. So my mm. parents, obviously working in a church, were very much into spirituality, but then mm -hmm. they also were very strong about education. And so it was important for our, my brother and I to really uh, invest in our education. Um, and then they taught us that our culture was a gift. So mm that you know just being culturally rich uh in high school i was able to uh, move with my parents to liberia west africa mm -hmm. so i think also living outside of the states uh, gave me another vantage point mm -hmm. uh, because i think sometimes there can be a tendency for us to center ourselves as yeah. a nation and so to see like the world beyond baltimore where i was mm -hmm. growing up uh really helped me to, to operate, I would say, with a humility and an appreciation for the vast experiences uh, that people have. Mm. Wow, that's really great. And just even a privilege to be able to have those different experiences in different places. Uh, funny that you mentioned Liberia because the guest that we had on the last episode actually grew up in Liberia ah. before and after the Civil War and just talked wow. about, one, just the strength that he had from being in such a strong community before the war and how that really helped him stay grounded also part of the faith community even as he moved through the civil war right. but then coming here to the states as he talked about different perspectives realizing that he was african but then also realizing that he was african-american and a little yeah. bit of both and trying to navigate through that with all the things that have happened here in the states so again just such a rich perspective mm -hmm. that he has had and which it sounds like you've had in some different ways as well which i think right. is really really helpful. And we can also do that when we're here in the States. I think sometimes yeah. we forget about that um, yes. as well. And just the, the importance of just being exposed to people who aren't like us and mm -hmm. how much we can really learn. 
It's so true. And actually the, the war in Liberia is in part how I ended up focusing on trauma. So mm. we were there before the war and then we ended up being evacuated. And it was that uh, issue of privilege as well. Mm -hmm. You know, by being an American uh, citizen, I was able to get on that plane uh, mm -hmm. to, to go to uh, safety. And so um, operating with that awareness of, mm -hmm. you know, the impact of war, right? Having loved ones who are lost um, and um, just spaces and places um, the ways in which war disrupts so much. And mm. so then it's not just like a metaphor or something far away that you see on the news, yeah. but experiencing it up close in a place where there are not a lot of licensed psychologists. And so, you know, then asking that question of like, how do we heal? Right. Um, so that is a part of how I ended up focusing mm. on trauma. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's really telling in terms of just all the perspectives that you brought as well. Oh. And again, so many things to kind of peel apart. One question that I was just going to pull back to just, you know, as I'm thinking about as many people are listening to this episode, I think a comment that you made earlier about people being complicated, mm -hmm. also realizing that everybody's perspective or experience in one situation can be so different. I wonder, because I'm imagining some of our listeners are hearing this, especially those who maybe may maybe navigating with people who are having just challenges with everything going on or even mental illness and not always knowing how to engage people, especially if they feel like, okay, well, this is my loved one, but I can clearly see that their perspective is off in this situation. How does someone yeah. enter into that without just saying, no, you're wrong, mm -hmm. while also mm -hmm. trying to understand and validate, but then also yeah. kind of help the person navigate or get to a better place. So any, anything you'd be willing to share there? Sure. So I think uh, as you named first being willing to listen. Mm. I think often, as soon as we hear something we disagree with, we jump in with a speech or with a debate or with a correction. Um, and so to start off with a curiosity mm -hmm. of like, you know, so tell me how you landed there. Like, how, how did you come uh, to believe that or to know that? Um, and is there any part of you that uh, feels torn about it? Like, is there any um, part of you that, you know, wonders about, is that the fullness of the story, mm -hmm. right? And so I think coming in with a, a curiosity and a question is one piece. I think another piece is um, respecting our humanity, even when I don't have respect for the opinion. Mm. Right. So wow. I feel like the opinion is very problematic yeah. and I have like no regard for that. But you are a human being sitting across mm. from me. You are a member of my family or whatever that connection or relationship is. Um, and so on that level alone, you know, by my own values, there are certain ways in which I will not speak to you or there are certain ways I won't treat you just as a result of honoring humanity. Mm. And then um, I think it is also important to give yourself permission to speak the truth as you know it. Mm -hmm. um, because I, you know, used to be one of those people that would say, you know, I'm not going to say too much to keep the peace. And then I had to say to myself, whose peace are you keeping? Mm. 
right? So the people who were saying all kinds of outrageous things, they feel peaceful because right? mm -hmm. nobody is like challenging them or asking uh, them a question. And so to say, it's not just for me to be internally upset while everybody else is comfortable, but I also have a right to express myself and my mm -hmm. viewpoint um, and, you know, developing the capacity to do that even when you're with people who don't agree. Mm. And um, that was a good learning for me because, you know, there were, part, there were times in my life where I was primarily surrounded by people who agree with me. So then there are some things you don't even learn how to articulate because yeah. everyone's always like, yep, you know, you know, yep, <laughs> so <yep>. we agree. <laughs> so it was a muscle I had to develop mm. engaging with people who see the world very differently and learning how to, uh, even if they're not quote unquote convinced, but mm. at least being able to express, you know, what I believe and why. That, that's so good. I mean, I think yeah. listeners hearing that will take so many practical tips away. But even as you were talking, I couldn't help but not to politicize things, but I was thinking, wow, if we could actually capture that, mm -hmm. especially the respecting humanity, if we could capture yeah. that as a nation, we would mm -hmm. be in a very different place. Very different, very different. And it requires that sense of safety. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of a lot of people even at this moment don't feel safe. Mm you know, feel like, you know, um, left to their own devices, other people would either wipe me out or wipe out my community or would take away our rights and all of these things. So then when people are in a panic state mm -hmm. of feeling like that they are in danger, then it's very hard to, to listen with compassion. Yeah. So that's why I think we need kind of those uh, kind of commonalities and our ground rules of there are some things we can disagree on while still mm. honoring each other's humanity. James Baldwin said uh, something to the effect of we can um, agree to disagree or we can be in community and disagree as long as our disagreement is not a question of my right to exist. Mm. Right. So that's that piece of there's a line. There is a line. So yes, we can have all kinds of different viewpoints, but when we start um, speaking and moving in such a way to deny people's right to exist, well, then you're going to get a different response. Mm -hmm. That's so good. So worth yeah. repeating in lots of different circumstances and situations. Yeah, that's so we can't right. remind ourselves about that enough. Yeah. And again, so much to think about you know, just in terms of one-on-one -on -one individual conversation, but even mm -hmm. in terms of nationally and societally, which I think is a good segue as well, because I wondered if you give people a little bit about your journey to the APA and then also what the APA represents and does. Yes. So, so it's been a, a beautiful journey uh, for me within the American Psychological Association. Uh, and it starts with finding like your common interest or common community. Uh, the American Psychological Association is a huge organization, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, over 130,000 members. And so when we think about notions such as belonging or organizational home, uh, for many of us, you find a home within the home. Mm. And so we have uh, different divisions. And one of the divisions is a Society for the Psychology of Women. Mm. And so that was kind of my first home uh, within APA. 
and connecting uh, with people who are committed to bettering the lives of women and girls and addressing our mental health issues. And so uh, at the time, soon after I graduated from, from graduate school, mm -hmm. the president for that women's division uh, was Jessica Henderson Daniel. Okay. And she is a black woman who went on to become APA's first black woman president. Wow. So then it is not by accident, right, mm -hmm. that I am in this seat now. <laughs> Mentorship mm -hmm. matters. Yep. And yep. Uh, she, you know, when I graduated with my doctorate, I was you know, in my early 20s. And she, you know, took me under her wing. It was me. It was a group of us because one of her initiatives was mentorship. Mm. And so she had us all kind of articulate professional goals. And then there were a group of mentors to like help us to navigate those spaces. So along with having a passion for women's mental health, um, I have a big interest in global issues. And so soon after I graduated, the American Psychological Association uh, received non-governmental organizational status at the United mm. Nations. Mm. And so they put out a call that they were going to have six representatives and I had just graduated. So I said, oh, they're probably not going to pick me, but I'm going to apply anyway. And this oh. is an important point for all yep. of our students or early career people uh, or even mid-career. Don't count yourself out, right? Yep. Sometimes we eliminate ourselves. It's like make them tell you no instead mm -hmm. of you telling yourself no. And so I was one of the applicants. Uh, I got called into New York for the interview. Uh, they were picking, I believe there were six of us for that um, initial assignment. And at the interview, I was the only one in the interview who mentioned racism and coming wow. up was the World Conference Against Racism. Wow. So they needed one of the six representatives to cover that convention. And so I ended up being selected. Mm. And so um, that was a, a big part of my uh, work in APA. Um, and then working as a, a leader and a researcher uh, in my work around trauma really um, added to the, the contributions around trauma mm -hmm. psychology. And so uh, some maybe 10 years after that, I uh, had told my mentor, uh, the women's division is division 35. And I said, I want to be president of Division 35 before I'm 35. <laughs> and so nice. I was like, you know, that, and so she said, are you willing to work? And I said, yes. Mm. She said, OK, we're going to make it happen. Wow. So 34, I was elected. Wow. I <laughs> president they had had. And uh, it's funny how your different training serves you. When we had mm. our first meeting, they were all shocked and were like, how'd you learn how to run a meeting? They thought they were gonna have to like handle things, but growing up in the black church, mm. there's a young people's division and you run your own meetings with Robert's Rules of Order. Like, mm, you know how to wow. call for a vote and all these things. <laughs> I was like, oh, I've been doing that. You're seasoned already. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, it was it was a, a beautiful uh, year. Well, you operate as a trio, mm. and then after that, people kept planting the seed of you should run for president of the whole thing. Mm. And initially, it was not an interest of mine because I had my mind on I wanted to do the women's group. I did it. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of finished and gone back to my academic work and uh, my private practice. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, timing is interesting and important. So when people circled around the most recent time and said, 
there's a group of us who want to support you. Are you willing to run? Mm. And for the first time I thought about it, and especially as a trauma psychologist, I was seeing both we were in the pandemic mm. and the realities of racial trauma. And I felt like this is the time. Mm. Uh, so I uh, entered the race. I will say financially, it was a great year to run because all of the campaign was online. So yeah. you just send me the Zoom link. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Instead of having to like fly all over the country mm -hmm. and you know, do all of that. Wow. So uh, virtual elections kind of um, level the playing field to some mm -hmm. extent. Mm -hmm. So uh, I am uh, really grateful and excited and uh, about the work we've been doing. So this 2023 is my presidential year, mm -hmm. um, but I remain on the board for three years. And my focus areas are trauma, grief, and oppression. Mm. Um, and we're just doing some really exciting things. That's yeah, wonderful to hear. I mean, just the whole navigation and story of it. So, I mean, it sounds like the need and your passion mm -hmm. met together. And that's, that's right. what shifted yes. your narrative in terms of your willingness right. to jump in. Yes, of seeing this is like... Uh, and years before me, a lot of presidents would make the argument of how they could convince uh, society that psychology had something to offer. Mm. But the time that we were living in, it's like all the therapists I knew were full. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just a matter of like trying to convince them we have something to offer. It's more the nation and even the world were turning mm. to people of our profession and saying, what can we do, mm -hmm. right? People are uh, overwhelmed, the, the grief, the stress, the loss. Um, and so it was just uh, a very different climate mm -hmm. where you're being called on as a profession uh, to really fill a void that um, as in, in human terms, we'd never experienced anything mm -hmm. like this before, like the numbers of losses, um, you know, it was, it was, it is uh, really life changing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so important in so many ways. I mean, I can just hear the, the passion in your voice for all those pieces as well. And just, I mean, as you mentioned, just it seems like there's some gratitude also about how people have now yeah. caught the need and the vision. Mm -hmm. But yeah. at the same time, it seems, it seems, at least in my perspective, there's still a tension there as yes. well yeah. because there's such a huge need. So I'm, I'm also curious, and I'm sure our listeners are curious about you as an organization. Mm -hmm. How do you address such a large need where a lot of people are saying this is invaluable and others are saying there aren't enough psychologists, especially if you think about, I mean, just in society, in high schools, on college campuses, how, how are you all yeah. trying to navigate that? Mm -hmm. One of the things is trying to increase uh, the numbers in the field. Mm -hmm. And it is um, excited to report um, out of the advanced placement courses, the AP courses in high school, mm. we have AP psychology classes and AP psychology is right now the number one choice among the sciences. Wow. That so many students are interested in selecting it. They see how it connects to their lives. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in that working with uh, educators within the school system, because one of the things we know is people can't pick a career if they never heard of it, mm -hmm. right? So it's like they heard of like doctor, nurse, teacher, firefighter. And so uh, raising the awareness, not only about the field of psychology that it exists, but also the range of things that you can do with it. 
um, because, you know, from your own work, knowing uh, it's not only about those who are in practice, but uh, the rich uh, scientific work that's being done, mm-hmm. education, and then we have applied psychology or uh, industrial organizational psychology. Mm-hmm. So um, people who work, you know, we talk about transforming systems. Yeah. Um, and so there, you know, we at Pepperdine, along with our doctoral program, we have a master's program. And I tell our students, whatever you ultimately choose to do, this degree will serve you because mm. it's going to involve people, right? Yep. So even people yep. who end up going into law or to business, having a fundamental understanding about psychology uh, can help them. Mm. So that's a part of the, the work that we're doing is trying to increase uh, the field um, and also trying to uh, provide advocacy using uh, psychological science. And so there are issues that people are uh, advocating for, whether we're talking about uh, climate change, uh, whether we're talking about access to healthcare, um, but being able to document, which we can, the psychological costs, Mm. consequences, and even some solutions, Mm -hmm. I think helps to inform um, our policymakers, our legislators. And so uh, we just on this past Monday had one of our advocacy days where our members uh, set up virtual meetings uh, with senators and with uh, congressional representatives about you know some of the key issues and educating them. We also provide testimony on the Hill about you know whatever the issue, school shootings, whatever it is people are mm-hmm. facing, uh, what we can contribute to the conversation so that we can come up with some solutions that really have impact. Mm. That's, I mean, that's encouraging to hear how it's really cutting across so many different domains and systems. And as you mentioned, because that psychology is going to be so important in so many different ways. I mean, a little bit, maybe selfishly, just as I've noticed with the neuroscience and someone who does a lot of behavior neuroscience, I've talked to university presidents who are behavioral neuroscientists. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing seeing how they navigate with people just based on the way that they watch people's behaviors and how that has really helped them. Yes in their leadership roles. So I think what you've mentioned to your students is, is so important. And yeah. then even as you were talking about policy, I mean, a lot of times, probably the last 10 to 15 years, we've talked a lot in this country about needing to increase our scientific literacy across society. Yeah. But I think if anything, the pandemic has, has shown us how important that is in terms of our, our psychological understanding. Yeah. How much differently we would navigate if we had that understanding in a broader right. perspective. And, and how that even became politicized, like mm. the attacks on science. Yeah. And so it's like, for some scientists, it was their first time ever for, uh, participating in a protest march. It's yeah. like, uh, you know, people thinking they picked a career that was quote unquote apolitical, but mm-hmm. you somehow, know, right, somehow, here oh we are. Oh my goodness. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's so important. And then when you brought up this issue of leadership, mm-hmm. you know, what our um, researchers find about uh, the necessity and the value of being relational, you know, whether we talk mm-hmm. about emotional intelligence uh, or social skills, however we name that, that it's not just about the outcome, meaning the labor or like mm-hmm. what are the goals. Um, but as my mother would say, it does matter how you treat people. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> so some of these wisdoms that we find our grandmothers or our culture could have taught us. Um, but to be able to document mm-hmm. it, I think, is, is so important as well in terms of what helps when you're trying to is it motivate people, mobilize mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. Um, and for, for sustainable change. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, again, I'm, I'm, I was already grateful that you're in your role as president, but feeling even more grateful for the work that you're doing. And I'm sure working in teams to kind of move a lot of these things forward across, across society as well. Oh, thank you so much. I am so excited. And, you know, what, one of the things I've talked about or described it is as a movement in the sense that many people are involved. Mm. And I tell people like 2023 is a blip on the screen, right? Mm -hmm. I get to be mm -hmm. president for this year and then it's not going to be my year anymore. But what encourages me is there are so many like-minded people in various roles and positions mm. in APA, outside of APA. And so when we're all you know, moving at the same time, yeah. then we can really see some great things happen. Yeah, really, really well said. So I know we've also talked, you know, speaking of relationships and relational things and thinking about community, we've also talked quite a bit about aspects of your faith growing up. And so I was curious if you could bring that back into the conversation, both in terms of how as a field, and I'm, I'm not speculating, but giving you some of my observations, it seems that psychology has been more accepting of the fact that faith is a large part of people's lives. So if you'd want to comment on that, and then also how that for you is an integrated experience as a psychologist and as a leader. Absolutely. I'm so excited to be uh, one of the many people who is doing bridge building work mm -hmm. uh, in this area um, that when the field of psychology started, you know, many of the pioneers in the field were people of faith. It wasn't seen as a tension. Mm -hmm. Um, but, and, and psychology, you know, literally means study of the soul. Mm. Um, but then as the field developed, I think in some ways, trying to establish itself as a science led uh, some leaders in the field to like disconnect from spirituality. Um, and it can also be like from their own experiences mm. uh, when uh, some people overgeneralize and only see that faith-based space as a place of shame or a place mm. of harm. And what I do is I hold both truths and I encourage our students to hold both truths, which is there are people for whom it has been a life-saving resource mm -hmm. and that it's been healing and nourishing and edifying. And there are people who have been harmed in those mm -hmm. spaces. And so, both things are true. I think what ends up happening is people go from one extreme to the other. So either if you experience it as harmful, it's hard to see anything good about it, mm -hmm. or people who love it uh, don't believe any of the reports that have come mm -hmm. forward of people who have been harmed. And so we you know, want to be really careful about that and recognize um, we never want to put people in a position where they feel they have to choose. Mm -hmm. Right. So if psychologists say um, dismissive things about your faith, like I literally had a client who shared with me that their former therapist was like very warm until the client shared they, they were in seminary training to be a minister. Mm -hmm. And then the client, the therapist responded, you seem so smart. Don't tell me you believe that stuff. Wow. Like what in the world, like what an attack on the very mm. core of this person. Yeah. So there have been statements like that directly or indirectly that have mm -hmm. been made by people in the field. And then on the other side, I have heard from pulpits and, you know, sermons um, where people will say things like, you know, you don't need therapy, you need to pray mm -hmm. and presenting this false choice. You mm -hmm. know, I had a client who her pastor literally told her, you need to stop letting those devil people mess with your mind. I already prayed for you. Wow. And so um, to stop um, 
creating attention, mm -hmm. but instead to recognize that collectively we can provide the support that people are so much in need of. You know, I have so much respect for a lot of times faith communities are like uh, people's chosen home or family in the sense mm -hmm. that a lot, especially black churches will have programs all week long. Right. Okay. So the therapist, <laughs> I might, you know, we might have one hour a week, mm -hmm. right? With 50 minutes an hour. And uh, but then the rest of the week, people may be like on their own. Mm -hmm. So they may go like Monday for choir rehearsal, Tuesday, Bible study, Wednesday, mm -hmm. they're helping to feed the homeless. And, and that is their community. Yeah. So uh, there are things that we uh, both give. And I think it just requires greater understanding of each other and respect. Mm. Yeah, it's so well said. And I mean, all those stories that you shared. I mean, I think sometimes to your point about people having one perspective about faith, either for or against based on their personal experience, but then also it's sometimes hard to, again, as you mentioned earlier, think about an experience outside of your own right. and how yes. important it is to have that understanding, but how much those comments still happen right. on both sides. Cause I see them all the time yeah. as well, whether I'm in the classroom mm -hmm. or in the lab or in the community and just making right. sure that people actually have an understanding of what's happening yeah. in each space. And it's been encouraging you know, to see the way some of those have turned into collaborations as well, which right. I think is really healthy. That's, you know, what's been beautiful is, you know, at my church in South Los Angeles doing uh, mental health ministry. So, mm -hmm. you know, literally we'll do workshops on uh, dealing with holiday stress or mm -hmm. grief and loss, healthy versus unhealthy relationships. And so people, you know, show up and they, you know, want the knowledge, they want the information. And to have it in that space mm -hmm. lets them know that it's okay to make use of it, right? Mm -hmm. Or to be accessible. Um, I remember at one of my former churches, the pastor talked openly um, in her sermons about having gone to therapy. And it just gave so many people permission to feel mm -hmm. like, like we know she's holy, right? <laughs> we know like she prays all the time. So mm -hmm. if she could do, you know, make use of it, then like maybe it could help me too. Mm. So I think, you know, it, it can start from the top in terms of leadership, giving more room and permission and encouragement for mm -hmm. people to make use of the services. Yeah, I think that's really true and really healthy. Yeah. Do you see any roles from an organizational standpoint for a group like the APA in some of these conversations? And if so, what, what, what does that look like exactly? Yes. So as I was mentioning, we have multiple divisions and even mm -hmm. one of our divisions has a focus on uh, faith, spirituality and religion. Mm. So um, it covers all the different uh, domains of our work. So in terms of research, it is important to uh, be able to explore both quantitatively and qualitatively, you know, what is the impact um, of faith or being a part of a faith community or mm -hmm. faith practices, um, what are things that are helpful or harmful? So, you know, there's something about positive religious coping or negative religious coping. Mm -hmm. So how you picture God or think about God mm -hmm. is going to affect whether or not the, your faith is distressing for you or encouraging for you, mm. right? If you're thinking like, there is this figure that's out to get me and who's mad at me and you know, all these mm -hmm. things, then yeah, I'm gonna be stressed out. And then mm -hmm. it's gonna be a negative thing in my life versus do I really picture that as some source that is loving, that cares about me, that wants good for me, um, 
then I'm going to have a different psychological experience as I mm -hmm. think about my relationship with that. Um, and even for those who may not be uh, religious in the sense of like belief in a God, but as uh, spiritual beings, mm -hmm. you know, what are those principles that uh, guide their lives? Uh, because I say wherever you have human beings involved, you're going to have um, blessing and difficulty, mm -hmm. right? So even some people who will take the God part out, but you have people gathering for a book club or gathering for yoga, mm -hmm. whatever you have people gathering for, <laughs> they're going to bring their stuff into it. And mm -hmm. some of that will be edifying <laughs> and some of it will be destructive. Mm -hmm. So yeah. uh, we just want to give space for the the truth of, you know, we are works in progress mm -hmm. and um, to be able to see the ideals or the principles as opposed to people's uh, imperfect variations of trying to live that out. Mm. Yeah, that's so well said. It reminds me of something you said even before we we started this recording, just in terms of also bringing your whole authentic self yes. to this work as well. And so I know you're talking from a leadership position, but it seems like there's also aspects of leading by example in right. your own life as well. Right. And that that authentic truth telling to mm. not have to pretend to have all the answers or mm -hmm. I think this is a big one with faith leaders when people are in grief or trauma, they're often asking us like, why? Like, why did this happen? And because there's not a cookie cutter, easy answer, mm -hmm. sometimes people have said things that are harmful, just trying to create an answer. Yeah. And so even for us to give room for the mystery, to be able to say, I'm not sure, like, you know, why your mom died so young or, you know, and yet, right, mm -hmm. uh, we're here uh, to, to be with each other, to support each other. So I think the humility and the uh, honesty really uh, does much more than trying to dictate some fake answer. Yeah, yeah. It's a healthy place, but not always an easy place. To right, to. <laughs> right, yep. So appreciate the way that, again, you're leading by example and then also just putting things in place and have these conversations and policies to really help us get to that place yeah. as a society as and, well. And mentioning policy, when you asked about, you know, things that APA is doing, there mm -hmm. is a group of, uh, there are a group of psychologists now that are working for some guidelines mm -hmm. to help people who are in practice to know how to integrate yeah. religion and spirituality respectfully, yeah. but appropriately. Uh, so when we think about like cultural awareness, people mm -hmm. often think about race and ethnicity, maybe they think about gender, sexuality or disability, mm -hmm. um, but religion often gets left out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our researchers find in general, the general public endorses higher levels of religiosity than mental health providers. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to leave it out and want to help equip uh, those who are of service to others to know how to uh, integrate it appropriately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so that's so well said and, and encouraging to know that you're it's also based on the research and what you're yeah. seeing as well. And then just anecdotally, I've definitely seen that in terms of the circles that I've moved in, whether that's in psychology circles or even in scientific circles, that people have been having these diversity, equity, inclusion conversation right. conversations and realizing that the faith component has oftentimes been yeah. left out. But I think especially the last few years, realizing how harmful Mm -hmm. that can be to pretend that it doesn't right. exist so that's right yeah it's there and then we can do harm out of ignorance mm -hmm. you know like mm -hmm. i had a we have a, a clinic where we provide community care mm -hmm. uh, for like a lower rate 
And, you know, one of the students came to me because she had a client who was fasting and the mm -hmm. student was not familiar with fasting. So if you don't know what that is, sure, you can create in your minds all kinds of things that are problematic, right? Mm -hmm. Or you could see a problem where there's not a problem. Exactly. So it's important for us to provide the training and the awareness mm -hmm. uh, so we can have understanding. Mm. Also encouraging. I know I've said this a few times with the APA is definitely in good hands. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I'm grateful for the opportunity to serve and really blessed to be able to serve with a, a number of really uh, incredible people and glad that you are in the field as well. Yeah, I'm definitely grateful as well. Well, this has been a really rich conversation. Went too fast. So many things we could have touched on, but any last pieces that you want to leave the listeners with in terms of what gives you hope on a day to day basis? Yes. Yeah, so I want to say one of the things that gives me hope uh, is the arts, artistic expression. And so for us to think about ways to both express ourselves through the arts, mm -hmm. but also to uh, engage with other people's artistry. So that can be in music. I tell people, think of a theme song, play it in the morning before mm -hmm. you start working or engaging with your family, uh, moving our bodies or dancing. Mm -hmm. Uh, poetry. And then some people will say, I'm not artsy, but it might be culinary arts, the way you cook, the way mm -hmm. you wear your hair, the way you decorate your office or your yeah. home. Uh, so that creativity, I think it helps us to think out of the box, which is always a good thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, then the last thing I would just say is to remember your own care. Often we are in service of other people but we don't want to erase, abandon, or neglect ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so I hope you will do something for you on today. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with our listeners, words of wisdom. And for any who want to know more or hear more about some of the things that Dr. Tam has mentioned, you can definitely check out her TED Talks. There's lots of rich insights there as well. So again, thank you so much for being here on the Addy Hour podcast, just for your work and for all that you came to share with our listeners as well today. Definitely appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. Of course.